Welcome to the Dream Job System, the only podcast that provides proven tangible strategies to help you land a job you love without traditional experience and without applying online. Get ready to level up your job search with your host, Austin Belsack. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Dream Job System podcast. I'm your host, Austin Belsack, and today we are back with July's edition of Ask Austin Anything. So I've sorted through a bunch of awesome questions from you all this month, and I've picked out six that I'm incredibly excited to answer. So thank you, as always, for your submissions. And on top of that, I hope you're having an awesome summer because this episode's coming out at the end of July. That means that summer is more than half over. It's always crazy how quickly it flies by, but we're trying to enjoy every minute of it and get out and do as much as we possibly can. So I hope you're staying safe. I hope you're staying healthy, but I also hope you're finding some time to get out there and soak up some sunshine. So if you're new to these episodes, we do this every single month. I take questions from everybody who's listening to this podcast. I sort through them and I pick a handful of them to answer directly right here live on the podcast. So if you want to submit your own question for Ask Austin Anything, you can email me, you can text me, or you can go to our forum at cultivatedculture.com forward slash AAA. You can submit your question. Make sure you mention it's for the Ask Austin Anything episode. I will take a look and we will try our best to include it in the episode. So without further ado, let's jump on in. Our first question comes from Adam here. Adam says, I was rejected from my dream company. Can I still apply there? Should I wait a few years or am I totally cooked? Now, this is a question I hear from a lot of people because rejection is just a natural part of the process. But when we feel rejected, we have this innate sense that we don't want to go back down that path. We don't want to engage with that person again, right? If you ask somebody on a date and they say no to you, you typically don't go back and ask them on another date a few months later, right? That's not how our brains work. But the job search is totally, totally different. And in fact, most people end up landing jobs at their dream companies after several tries. So that was definitely the case for me. I posted about this recently on LinkedIn, but I actually landed my job offer at Microsoft on the fifth try. So I initially applied for a role at Microsoft in the mid-20-teens, I'd say, I think it was in 2014 at some point, and I got rejected flat out. And then I applied three more times between 2014 and 2015, and I got rejected for all of those opportunities as well. And then in 2015, I had a recruiter reach out to me about a role at Microsoft, and I was super excited. They got me in the door for the interview, and then I lost to an internal candidate. But I kept in touch with the people there. I kept my relationships going. And eventually a new role popped up. I leveraged those relationships to get in the door and I finally got the offer. But that was on the fifth try, right? So a lot of people that I talk to, especially people interviewing at these larger companies or trying to get in the door at these larger companies, they worry about their record, right? People can see how many times they've been rejected or you know this, that, or the other thing. And I just want to tell you that that does not matter whatsoever. If there is a great role for you and you are a great fit for that role, the company is always interested in that. So just as I had to get or basically had to try, you know, four or five times to get in the door at Microsoft, I had an even harder time at Google. I applied about 10 or 11 times before I finally got to the interview that went to the offer stage with Google. So same thing there. So if you have a dream company or a company that you're really excited about, don't shy away after one rejection. That's just one step in the path. And instead, what I'd encourage you to do is use that rejection as a way to continue building relationships with people. You've connected with at least one person at the company, hopefully more. Keep those relationships going. Keep reaching out to those people because in the future, when something else pops up, those people are going to be the the first people to funnel you in the door. And that's where the magic tends to happen. So Adam, keep it up, keep going, don't stop, don't quit. And I want to hear what happens the next time you go for this. 
Our next question comes from Jagoda, who's asking, what are things to watch out for in a job posting that would indicate the workplace slash management can be toxic and you should avoid working there? So this is a great question because a lot of companies spend a lot of time marketing their image, right? And this is something that most of us don't realize. But when we look at Apple, when we look at Google, when we look at any company We go to their website, we see their pages about diversity and inclusion, we see their pages about, you know, the money they give to charity, we see the pages about the social impact, so on and so forth. That is all part of an image that they are specifically curating. And that's not to say that they aren't truly invested in some of those things. Some of these companies are, but also some of these companies are not. The key thing here that I'm trying to get to is that these are essentially, this is marketing. That's basically what they're doing. They're marketing themselves, both to their customers, but also to future employees. They want people to be excited to work there because of the culture. So it can be tough to see through that marketing and to understand what's really going on on the inside. So there are a couple of layers here that you can tackle on your own to better understand what's going on behind the curtain. So if you stepped in the door, you would know exactly what you were walking into. So the first, Jagoda, as you mentioned, was the job posting. So I like to look at the language in the job posting and see what people are talking about. So there's some language and some phrasing that I always like to be careful of or dig deeper on. So for example, one of them is working in a quote, fast paced environment. If you're working in a fast paced environment, that typically means that you're wearing a lot of hats. That usually means you have probably what would be considered more than one job at many companies. And that means you're going to be taking on a lot of work. So some people are cool with that. And some people like that. And some people see a a path to growth through that. And that is absolutely definitely there if that's the right thing for you. But some people want to show up and they want to do one thing. So that's just something to be careful about that is, again, spun up in language to make it sound really sexy, right? Fast-paced environment. Another thing that you have to be careful for is language that's around, you know, basically people dedicating themselves to the cause, right? Because typically what that means is, you know, you're going to be working nights, you're going to be working weekends, you're going to be working outside of, you know, normal hours, most likely, because this is the cause. And this is what we do, we fight for the cause. So I would also be careful of that type of language, uh, because nobody should be working nights and weekends for something that is not their own job, or unless you are being very, 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 very well compensated, uh, or have another good reason. But For most of us out there, we should be showing up. We should be putting in the time that we're being compensated to put in. We should bust our butt to do a great job. But then we should also be able to go home and spend time on ourselves and with our family and with our friends, et cetera. So I'd be careful of anything that's too kind of culty, if you will, in the job description. So those are just two examples of what you can see in the posting. But the posting is just the beginning. So the next thing that you can do is you can actually go to a site like Glassdoor and you can read the company reviews, but we're not just reading all of them. And in fact, we're going to choose specific ones. And this may not always be available to you, but the problem with Glassdoor is the majority of the reviews on there fall into two buckets. The first bucket is people who have left the company on not so great terms and carry some bias. They're angry, they're upset, they're emotional, and they're going to throw that out there probably in like a one-star review that has a lot of capital letters and things like that. We don't necessarily want to put too much stock into those because that is usually a one-off experience in most cases. The second bucket is basically the opposite end of the spectrum. And companies are notorious for doing this, where they'll basically lock their employees in a room and you know bring in pizza or beer or whatever it is and have them write glass door reviews for the company. And there's just no way these employees are sharing their true thoughts in, in that circumstance, right? So what you end up with here is a lot of five-star reviews that 
kind of sound a little fluffy or maybe too good to be true as well. So what I want you to go look for are the three-star reviews. You can also look at the two-star and the four-star, but really look at the three-star reviews and see what people have to say, because those are the folks who are going to give the most honest take. And now, obviously, if there's a three-star review, there this isn't a perfect setup for that person. So we need to keep that in mind. But the three and probably the four-star reviews are where you're going to get the most honest take about the company from people who have less bias and are going to be more forthcoming about what's really going on behind the scenes. So I would look at those middle range of reviews and see what you can find there. Again, that's not always going to be possible for every company. Some companies don't have a ton of reviews. Some companies only have one or five star reviews, and you probably know what's going on there. That doesn't sound like a great place to be. Um, But if this is an option to you, if that data is there, it's definitely worth considering. Then the third option, and my personal favorite, is to go talk to employees who left, but left for a better opportunity. So for example, if somebody was working as an account manager at a startup, and then they got a job as an account manager at Google, that is objectively a better move on paper, uh, simply because you're going from a startup, which is potentially an unknown quantity to Google, which is, you know, one of the most known quantities and most successful quantities out there in terms of, you know, the spectrum of businesses. So if we go talk to somebody who made that move, they didn't necessarily leave because they were forced out or because there was something weird going on. Or if there was, they may have a little less emotion tied up in it because, again, they got a better opportunity. So what I'm trying to say is these people who left the company for a better opportunity, they tend to have the most honest view of their previous employer versus somebody who might have been laid off or somebody who may have had a bad experience or somebody who may, you know, still be, you know, weirdly, you know, some sort of Stockholm syndrome, but in love with the company still, but they were forced out for some reason. There's all of these crazy scenarios that can happen. And when somebody leaves and they make a lateral move or, you know, they're unemployed still, there can be some baggage there that may taint the actual view of what's going on at the company. So again, if you can find people who left for a better opportunity, you're going to get what I found to be the best information on the company's culture and what's really going on behind closed doors. So there are three ways to research the company, do your due diligence and understand what's really going on before you decide to take the leap with that employer. Our third question comes from Peter, and we're going to switch gears to a little bit more of an entrepreneurial flavor here. Peter is asking, what are some of the biggest hurdles to starting your own company? So in my experience, yeah, I've I've tried to start many, many different companies, and uh, most of them have failed. In fact, all of them have failed except for Cultivated Culture, which is why I'm still here recording this podcast, because we finally found something that, that seems to be working. But the big mistake that I see a lot of people making and the mistake that I also made personally was not validating my idea before I started investing time and money and resources into creating this idea. So what ends up happening is people get this idea for a business and they immediately go to set up the infrastructure, right? So they want to create an awesome website and they want to get a sweet logo and they want to get business cards and they want to build out this marketing collateral and they do all these things. But the problem is none of those things are really helping them understand whether or not there's a market for their idea. And that's one of the biggest reasons the company has failed because there isn't a market, there aren't any customers, there's not enough money coming in uh, to basically generate an ROI or to generate a profit. So instead, what you need to do is really get out there and validate your idea before you invest anything else in this business. 
So for example, for me with cultivated culture, I actually, I didn't really even proactively validate my idea. Other people validated it for me, but I was of the mindset of looking for ideas because I wanted to start my own thing at some point. But essentially I had, you know, several dozen people come to me after I got my job at Microsoft and ask me how I did it. And I got on the phone with pretty much every single one of them. And I got to listen to, you know, the things that they were saying and the struggles they were having and the challenges. And when I offered my advice, like people would literally tell me, like, I would pay for this, you know, this is is amazing. Like I haven't heard this anywhere else. And that was validation for me, although that's not what I would consider to be true validation for an idea because nobody actually gave me money. You know, if I had charged those people 50 bucks for the, the call and they were willing to pay it, then that may have been a little bit closer to true validation. But really, the big mistake that people make is they don't get out there and have people swipe their credit card or take money out of their pocket and put it into your pocket before you're starting this business or at least at the very beginning. So what I want you to do the next time you have an idea for something, I want you to create what's basically the most minimum viable product that you can create or even just a pitch for the product. And then I want you to try and pre-sell it to people. So this is something that I've talked about before on the podcast, and this is something that we do at Cultivated Culture. But whenever we have an idea for a new product, we always do that pre-sale, that pre-order. So I'll give you an example. Earlier this year, we decided that we wanted to create a LinkedIn course. So I emailed everybody who has already signed up for one of our courses. And I basically said, you know, hey, we're thinking about creating this premium resource for LinkedIn. If you'd be interested, let me know. So they would send me an email back, or at least, you know, a portion of the people that we emailed would reply to me. And the people who did reply, I would send them a one sheet that basically laid out the course. And it said, you know, hey, Here's, you know, why I'm qualified to talk about this. Here's what you'll find in the course. Here are the expected results. Here's how much it's going to cost if you pre-order it. And then I also sent them a survey that basically said, you know, what are the two biggest questions you have about this course or this space? And would you be willing to buy the product? And for every person that checked, yes, I'd be willing to buy the product, I followed back up with them and I basically had a conversation with them. And what I looked for was a certain sales rate. So I was I always look for a 10% sell-through rate when we do that validation. And basically what's happening here is I'm discounting the product a little bit because people are pre-ordering it. But what I'm seeing is, are people willing to actually swipe their credit card for a product that doesn't exist yet, a product that's basically at this point just an idea? And part of the pitch is allowing them to be part of the creation process. So because it hasn't been created yet, we're going to take your feedback into account. We're going to let you you know, stay close with development. We're going to make sure this product is exactly what you need it to be. And that can be really attractive to a lot of people. So that's a great way to spin up something that's brand new that you may not have put out there or don't have testimonials for or whatever it is. But we do that. And then the people who sign up, we create basically a beta group out of those folks. And we do exactly what I mentioned. So as we roll out new lessons, as we roll out you know new features, whatever it is, we run it by the group, we get their feedback, we incorporate it. And that way, by the time we're ready to launch, we know two things. One, we know that we have a sell-through rate. We validated that people are willing to pay for this product because they paid for it before it even existed. And then two, we know the product is that much better because we've had this opportunity to incorporate real people's, real customers' feedback into our products. So that's just one small example of how you can do this. But essentially, any way that you can get people to commit by by using their checkbook or their bank account to your product early on, that is the best form of validation. And once you have that, then you can start go building the website. Then you can start go doing all the other stuff that I talked about. But the problem is people do it in reverse. I see so many people following you know, the mantra of if you build it, they will come. And that is not always the case. And that's a good way to waste a lot of money and run through many ideas that maybe even could have worked if you did it in the, the reverse order, but are going to fall flat on their face because you didn't.
So Peter, I hope that was helpful. If you're starting your own thing, I'm wishing you a ton of success. And if I can answer any other questions or help with anything else there, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. So the next question actually follows on an example that I shared. Uh, It's from Steve. And Steve asked, was there a tipping point when you went from, quote, helping all of your friends with their resumes to, quote, I think I can legitimately turn this into a side hustle? So that's such an awesome question, because I think a lot of us or many of us have been in the position where we're doing these things for free. You know, people are coming to us for advice or people are asking our opinion or people are, you know, basically viewing us as an expert or at least, you know, a thought leader or somebody who has superior knowledge on a subject. And we give a lot of stuff away for free, right? We give a lot of our time away. We get a a lot of our ideas away. And in many cases, we spent a lot. We invested a lot to be able to do that, right? You had to get the knowledge. You had to get the experience. You had to put in the hours in order to become somebody who's proficient enough at this to the point where other people are coming to you for advice. So for me personally, it was, you know, after the 20th or the 30th person reached out to me after I got my job at Microsoft and basically said like, you know, hey, I'm looking for a job. I saw you made this transition. Can you help me or can you share some advice? And after I had already, you know, I got on the phone with pretty much everybody that reached out to me, like I said. So after a while, I I realized that, you know, with so many people coming out of the woodwork who were just, you know, from my college, my university, that's mainly where a lot of these people were from. I realized that, you know, this is probably a lot bigger than just me and just this group. You know, I clearly struggled with the 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 traditional job search process. All these people that I talked to specifically struggled with the traditional job search process. And I knew from other people that I'd interacted with, other people that I'd spoken to, that they had also struggled with it. So I knew that there was this larger issue at hand here. And I also knew that, you know, people might be willing to pay for this because I had seen, you know, the competition in the market, if you will. I'd seen other career websites charging for coaching services. I'd seen other websites charging for tools. And so, you know, I tend to view competition as validation rather than a bad thing. You know, I know a lot of people who start businesses say, well, somebody else has already done that, or there's already X, Y, and Z companies doing the exact same thing. And I typically don't shy away from that. To me, that means that there's validation. You know, those companies wouldn't exist if there wasn't a market of people who are willing to pay them money. So because the competition exists, that means that you can carve your own niche out. You can find a way to, you know, start this thing on your own. So that's exactly what I did, but I didn't, you know, go through the validation process that I I just mentioned in my last answer. Instead, I just started creating content and sharing essentially all the advice and all the stuff that I had learned throughout my process. And I did have the eventual goal of monetizing, but I knew that because there were these other players in the space, I had to find a different way to stand out. So for me, my differentiator has always been twofold. You know, first I have that whole, you know, without applying online thing. Right. And I, I will say this and I believe it to be true, although I I have no idea, but I do believe I was the first person to kind of come on the scene and, and really hone in on this whole, like, focus on networking and value validation projects and everything that's sort of offline, if you will, focus on that referral aspect versus doing online apps. A lot of people you know, before me spent a lot more time on the traditional job search on resumes, on cover letters, et cetera. They would tell people that they had to network, but they didn't really show people how to network. So I like to think that that we were one of the first people in the in the space, or I was one of the first people in the space uh, of basically teaching people how to get in the door without applying online. There are more people now, but initially when I started, I was one of the only people who did that. So I was able to carve out a niche for myself because 
everybody else was focused on the traditional process. And so there were all these people who had hired career coaches, hired resume writers, you know, hired these people who were going to help them with the traditional process, and they didn't get the results that they wanted. And so they saw my stuff and it was basically, you know, hey, I'll help you do this without applying online. And they saw that as something totally different. So I wasn't even really competing with a lot of these traditional career coaches or resume writers or entities in the space because I had carved out this niche for myself. The second thing that I did was I just gave away pretty much all of my value for free. You know, obviously I held a few things back. Obviously a lot of these strategies developed and evolved over time as we got to test them out with more people, but I wasn't shy about sharing as much knowledge as I could up front. And the reason that I did that was twofold. You know, first I again needed a way to differentiate myself and also, you know, create credibility. So by sharing more information, I was giving away more for free than other people were charging for. And then I was able to build case studies because so many people would take my my free advice and they would go get jobs with it. And all of a sudden I had these testimonials. I had these case studies. The second thing is that I knew that I could monetize this later on because there were always there are always going to be people who want that extra layer of help. So no matter how much you give away for free, there's always groups of people and, and the group is much larger than you think. There's always groups of people who want extra handholding or who want FaceTime or who want that next tier of help. You know, the, the even the deeper, deeper secrets that are maybe super esoteric or super specific, those people always exist. And so I knew I could get there, but I knew I wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't even matter if I didn't have an audience. So that's essentially how I started and how I differentiated myself. But I played a little bit of a longer game with monetization because I could do that. I was sort of starting this side hustle uh, while working full time. And so I didn't have to worry about where my next dollar was coming from. And again, that's something that I definitely recommend people do if it's possible. It's not possible for everybody to start their business on the side of their full time job. But if you can, it drastically increases your chances of success. So Steve, I hope that was helpful. I really, really like that question. I'm really glad you asked. Uh, so yeah, appreciate you. Our next question comes from Janice. And Janice asks, if you could offer only one tip for somebody who's transitioning into tech with no work experience, what would that tip be? So if I could only use one strategy to get a job in tech, that strategy would be creating a portfolio. But not just any portfolio. So a lot of people know, uh, you know, about portfolios in the sense of creatives, right? Artists have their portfolios, directors have a portfolio, so on and so forth. Photographers have a portfolio, uh, but truly a portfolio can be leveraged in almost any industry for any job title. So the way that I like to come up with a portfolio, especially because, you know, in this case, we're transitioning into tech, but anytime we're transitioning into a new industry where we don't have experience, we really have to create experience because at the end of the day, companies aren't just going to take a chance on somebody who has gone out and gotten the knowledge, if you will. So there's so many people who go out and they take courses or they get certified or whatever it is. And then they say, okay, now I'm qualified. And that's not really true. Like you've gotten this certification, you've taken this course, which means you have some new knowledge, but companies don't really care about how much knowledge you have. What they care about is how well you can execute on that knowledge, how you take that knowledge and you turn it into results for them. So that's what they need to see. Now, when we're coming from that non-traditional background, we have to find new ways to prove that. So one of the best ways I found to do this is to basically just start creating the results that you want for yourself. So what you can do is come up with a list of your target companies. And then based on the industry that you're in or the job title that you're going for, you can essentially perform audits on these companies in that specific area. And then you can you know, either identify problems or highlight solutions or highlight an opportunity or whatever it is. And then you can write that out in a case study. 
So for example, if you wanted to be a user experience designer, something that you could do is, you know, pick, you know, three to five of your target companies and you could go perform audits on their websites to see how their UX is or maybe their mobile apps or whatever it is. You could survey their customers. You could also perform those audits on their competitors. And then you could make suggestions for improvements that basically align with those companies' goals. Once you have those suggestions and you've done all your research, now you can write up a blog post that basically walks through your whole thought process. So you can basically say, you know, hey, I really like, you know, this company here. I really like Spotify, let's say. And I think Spotify has an opportunity to improve its listening experience. So here's my hypothesis. And maybe, you you know, state your hypothesis or whatever. And then you say, here's the research that I did. And you walk through all the research that you did to basically set the stage. And then you show, you know, the testing that you did to kind of run your hypotheses, right? And then you show the solutions that you have. So based on this hypothesis, here's the research that I did. Here are the tests that I ran based on the data from those tests, the results from those tests. Here is the solution that I believe is most effective. And so what you're doing here is you're essentially showing somebody your entire thought process from here's a problem or here's an opportunity. Here's exactly how I would go about solving for this. Here's exactly how I'd research it. Here's exactly how I'd test it. Here are the types of solutions I can come up with. And so now if you do that for two, three, four, five plus companies, you have a body of work and that body of work can help you in so many ways. One, it can act as a value validation project for the specific companies because these are your target companies, right? You've already essentially done the value validation project by doing this work. But you can also extrapolate them because they're applicable to other companies in the space, right? You know, these specific solutions that you're providing, uh, sometimes they can be unique to a company, but because you're showing your whole thought process, you're basically letting somebody into your brain and they will know, you know, exactly what they're getting with you now versus trying to decipher that through a resume. So you can even take these same case studies and apply them to other companies uh, or bring them to other companies and say, hey, here's an example of the type of work that I've done. And then you can also showcase them online so they can make for great LinkedIn posts. They can make for great entities uh, in the featured section of your LinkedIn profile. You can put them on your resume. You can have a link to your portfolio. There's so many ways to share this. But that portfolio is just such an easier way for people to understand the value that you bring to the table, especially when you have a non-traditional background. So that's exactly what I would do. I would create these case studies. I would create them for my target companies. And then I would try to share them publicly. I would try to get them on a forum like LinkedIn. I would try to get them on a forum like medium.com. I would try to get some traction behind them because again, you never know who's going to see them. You never know who's going to offer you an opportunity. So last but not least here, we have a question from Jamie. And Jamie is asking, how would you recommend asking an employer for more time to consider an offer, especially if you're in the process of interviewing at other companies and you might receive offers from them soon? So this is a question that's popped up a couple times recently, which is why I wanted to answer it and uh, why, Jamie, I appreciate you asking it. So this is a tough position to be in, right? Because we have an offer from a company but it may not be our number one choice. Or for some reason, we may want to see you know, what else is out there, right? But typically what happens is when we get an offer, there's a deadline associated with that offer. And so we have to basically accept or reject the offer. And the problem with that is if we reject the offer, we obviously can't get it back. And now we're really hoping and praying that something else comes through and something better, right? And then uh, the, on the other side, you know, if we accept the offer, then we're sort of locked into this role, right? And even if we do get better offers from other companies, what do we do here? So my advice here uh, is always, you know, as a job seeker, you need to treat your career 
as if you were a CEO. You are basically the CEO of your career. So the decisions that you need to make are basically, they should be business decisions. They should be rooted in what is best for you from a business standpoint. And the reason I say that is because companies you know, they, they have no qualms about making decisions without emotion and decisions that are the best for them financially, the best for their shareholders, basically what's best for the business. And they don't mind doing that at the cost of a few individual people's feelings or even hundreds or thousands of individual people's feelings, right? And we've seen that in the past. So the example I always like to use is, you know, I've never seen an employee who, you know, during a mass layoff was retained because, you know, three years ago, they decided to stay with this company instead of accepting that other offer, right? I've never, ever heard of that happen. And in fact, I actually just saw a tweet where somebody basically said that they had received a job offer for $140,000 from another company, but they were early on in their career. They felt really loyal to their current company and they felt bad just leaving, uh, you know, for more money. So they went and they told their current company, about the new offer. And the current company told them, you know, we really want you to stay. Like, we really love the work you do. You know, if you stay, we'll make the compensation worth your while. So they rejected the other offer for 140K. And then a few weeks later, the company came back with their offer and it was for $65,000. So literally almost $80,000 less than what the person was going to make at this new job. And these stories pop up all over the place. So basically what I'm trying to say is that companies, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they don't have a ton of loyalty to their employees compared to their bottom lines. Their bottom lines are always going to win out. And that needs to be the same thing for you as a job seeker. Yes, you may burn some bridges. Yes, you know, you may rub some people the wrong way. But at the end of the day, you're making the decision that's best for you. And so what you need to do as a job seeker is you need to get all the information that you need to make a good decision. Then you need to thoroughly analyze that information. You need to weigh all the pros. You need to weigh all the cons. You need to make sure that, as we talked about earlier in the episode, that you do your due diligence and you make sure that what's on the table for you or what you're going to do is the right move for you, not that you're stepping into a toxic work environment or anything like that where you're going to be blindsided. You need to make sure that you have that information. And then once you have all the information and you've analyzed it, then you need to make the best decision for you. So in this case, my recommendation would be to accept the offer that you have received. And then I would continue to interview at the other companies. Now, I know this may be controversial. I've seen posts on LinkedIn from recruiters. I've also shared this advice before and people have come at me and said, you know, your word is your bond or you don't have any integrity or all this other stuff. And, you know, that's fine. That, that's how they feel. But at the end of the day, I have seen, you know, the way that companies treat people, especially when it comes to salary, when it comes to tough decisions like this. And that gives me no qualms about making the best decision for me. So if I truly feel, if I accept the offer at this company, and then let's say no other offers come in, I know I made the right choice because I still have this offer to fall back on, right? I still am in a, a decent position here. But let's say that new offers come in. I can weigh those. I can assess those. I can do that due diligence. And if one of them truly is a better offer for any number of reasons, more money, better manager, better team, better company, better future trajectory, any of those things... I am not going to feel bad about saying no to the current company and saying yes to that next company because I'm going to be spending 40 plus hours a week at this place because I know that I'm going to like the job. I hopefully am going to spend you know several years here as well. And it's really going to change the course and the trajectory of the rest of my career. So I have no qualms about doing that. 
Now, again, I just want to reemphasize that it's super important for you to get all of the information, to analyze that information, and then to make the best decision for you. You don't just want to say, hey, I'm going to go to this other company because they offer me more money. And then you step into a toxic work environment. And now you're kind of screwed on two fronts because you basically rescinded your offer from a company that may have been better. So you sort of burned a bridge there potentially. And now you've stepped into this environment that's toxic. So you're in an even worse spot. That's not a position you want to be in. So I have to emphasize again that you need to do your due diligence. You need to analyze all of the information and then you can make the best decision for you. But at the end of the day, if you're playing with a scenario where you have a deadline on a job offer and you have some you know, job offers that are potentially imminent, I always like to accept, you can ask for more time. And the best way to do that is to just say, you know, hey, can I have a little more time to consider this and see how much time they give you? But if they gave you a deadline, you know, you're only probably going to be able to get that extended an extra couple of days. And in that time, if you get another offer, great. If you don't get another offer, you know, that's my recommendation to accept this one, continue interviewing, see what you get on the other ones, do your research, do your analysis, and then make the best decision for you. So that's it for July's edition of Ask Austin Anything. Thank you as always for tuning in. And if you, if you have a question that you want me to answer in August edition of Ask Austin Anything, feel free to email it to me or text it to me. Just mention that it's for Ask Austin Anything, or you can use our form again. It's cultivatedculture.com forward slash AAA. Feel free to submit your question. I'll review all of them. I'll pick a handful and then we'll be back again next month. We'll see you there.